مماثلة في سوريا كان بدأ السؤال كيف يمكن أن نحدث تغيير في سوريا كما حدث في تونس وفي ليبيا وفي مصر Little bit after the, uh, that crisis, revolution started around the Arab world. It started in Tunis, moved into Egypt, and then Libya. The group, again, I consider myself quite lucky and very privileged. Uh, the group of young people were meeting and congregating and discussing and brainstorming, and I was meeting with them. The, the point for them was how they could start a revolution in Syria. How could they introduce change into their country, into Syria? طبعا حين الشباب والصبايا بداوا يفكرون وبداوا يضعون الخطط ولكن اعتقد ان الشعب الناس العاديين سبقوهم لانه بدات احداث درعا يوم 15 اذار 2011 بدات هذه الاحداث وبدا الشباب وبدانا جميعا نلحق بثوره هؤلاء الناس العاديين Uh, yes, sure. So the young people, male and females of Syria, were meeting, discussing, and uh, thinking of how they could start, uh, change. But actually, normal, average citizens in Syria led the change. They actually, uh, the events in Dar'a in March 15th, which uh, started, which was the first, uh, with first incidents after the, of the Syrian revolution. And to be honest, all those young people I described, myself included, we all started thinking, how are we going to catch up with the public movement that's wide, that's becoming, that's spreading little by little. لذلك أنا أنا أستطيع أن أجيبك الآن لم تكن نقطة تحول هي كانت امتداد علاقة علاقتي أنا والكثيرين بالثورة كانت امتداد. So uh, going back to the point, was was it a turning point? No, it wasn't a turning point. It was um, a continuation. The relationship that make, marked uh, my pers my personal engagement and the, all those other young people and the other people in Syria with the revolution was uh, a continuation of their former engagement with uh, our society. This is What Happened to Syria, a podcast about the country, the people, and their impact on the wider world since 2011. In this episode, we're going to be looking at some of the heroes and leaders in the largely leaderless Syrian revolution. Protests across the world in 2011 stood out for many reasons. First of all, there were more of them than the world had seen since the 1960s. But social media in 2011 also enabled large-scale protests to take a bottom-up approach that had rarely been seen before. It was believed that the collective weight of individuals coming together would overwhelm the governments and economic systems that made their lives hell. Tactically, this proved to be a somewhat successful approach, as Tunisia and Iceland show. But the establishment or deep state, depending on what you prefer to call it, almost always rebounded in 2012 and 2013. It's too simplistic to say that the global wave of protests in 2011 failed in the long run. It was the first chapter of an ongoing story, the opening move in a global struggle that continues to this day. In Syria, however, protesters faced risks that dissidents elsewhere could not imagine. 
protesters being assaulted by police was was considered a scandal in some countries. And even places where that was a routine occurrence rarely saw protesters being killed in the streets by security forces. Syria stood out because of how often protesters risked being killed or tortured, sometimes to death, for simply engaging in peaceful protests. The Assad regime realized that these peaceful, pluralistic demonstrations would counteract the sectarian propaganda with which it had relied upon to keep disgruntled members of minority communities from forming common cause with the Sunni Muslim majority who regularly faced discrimination and outright oppression. The single greatest threat to the Assad regime in 2011 was the prospect of Syrians from all religions all ethnicities, all strata of society coming together in unison to oppose the Assad regime. The protesters were also aware of this. That's why Muslims all over Syria made overtures to Christians, Alawis, Druze, and other religions. They realized that they all had a better chance if they came together and acted in unison rather than stick to the divisions that had been imposed upon them by the regime. The same one that they're trying to overthrow right now. Overthrow does not necessarily have to mean violence. It is possible for enough people to come together and peacefully make a country ungovernable in order to overthrow a regime that has made their lives hell. Again, in 2011, this had already taken place in multiple countries, including Egypt, which is pretty much right next door to Syria. What we are going to see in this episode is that the Syrian opposition was a cross-section of the entire country and all the different groups of people who lived within it. It was not exclusively some hardline Islamist Salafi movement that the regime and its supporters disingenuously painted out to be. We're going to examine men. We're going to examine women. We're going to examine Muslims, we're going to examine Christians, we're going to examine Alawis, we're going to examine a Druze individual, we're going to examine liberals and conservatives. We are going to examine people from all walks of life, but what these people all had in common was that they were brave as hell, and at least in 2011, they resisted the regime exclusively by peaceful means. This is What Happened to Syria, Episode 12. The Revolutionaries, Part 2. Gyeth Matar's number one priority during the Syrian Revolution was to keep his movement peaceful. He was 26 years old in 2011, a tailor with a pregnant wife. Gyeth could have stood on the sidelines and continued his ordinary life, but instead, he chose to get involved when protests broke out in Syria. He quickly realized how much of a damaging impact the regime's propaganda and violence was having, on, was having against protesters as well as Syrian society, and resolved to change it. Geth Matar became a legendary figure among the Syrian opposition for fearlessly approaching heavily armed security forces to hand them flowers and bottles of water. Gyeth was part of a non-violent trend of opposition for which his hometown, Daraya, became famous. Daraya's resistance to the regime is often overshadowed by that of Dara, Hams, or Hama, but it was among the most important due to the, due to the town's proximity to Damascus as well as the influence of non-violent intellectuals and religious leaders. 
The town gained a reputation for pluralism and women's rights, where Islamists marched side by side with Christians, Druze, Alawis, and other non-Muslims. Gyeth Matar and other activists in the, op- in the opposition knew that the regime was more threatened by peaceful protests than by violence. He knew that the combined effect of regime propaganda and massacres across the country was radicalizing supporters and opponents of the regime alike. Loyalists believed that they were fighting a sectarian menace bent on exterminating Syria's minorities and undoing decades of progress, while opponents of the regime were increasingly disillusioned with strictly peaceful activities and were becoming more open to taking up arms. Gyeth audaciously attempted to to bridge the divide between both sides and make sure the Syrian revolution remained a peaceful one. It says a lot about this guy that when he saw soldiers setting up checkpoints, people with orders to terrorize and kill people like him, he came to the conclusion that these soldiers must be exhausted, probably dehydrated, carrying all that equipment around in this heat. He approached people who could have killed him on the spot just to show them that their commanders had lied to them about the protesters being terrorists. What kind of terrorist hands you flowers and bottles of water? One such commander tried to tell his soldiers that the water was poisoned. Don't drink it! To which Geith and his companions responded by opening the plastic bottles and drinking from them in front of the soldiers. Geith was among multiple activists across Syria who made heroic efforts throughout 2011 to prevent the outbreak of a civil war, one that was largely instigated by a regime petrified of peaceful opposition. He was known for being held up on people's shoulders during protests, a megaphone in one hand and holding white roses in the other. He also had a reputation for standing completely still, showing no fear when soldiers shot at him. When, when soldiers shot at him. Whether or not that was wise, I'll leave that up to you, the listener, but it really speaks to his courage. There was a time when Gyeth Matar was one of the biggest thorns in the regime's side because of both his peaceful activism and his ability to inspire others to act like him. This prompted the regime to hunt him down, which forced him to go on the run for three months. There's an anecdote from this time when an Air Force intelligence officer, remember, these are the scariest guys in the Assad regime, supposedly called Geith on his cell phone and tried to intimidate him with threats of gruesome torture. The activist replied, if you can catch me, you are a hero. Unfortunately, though, he was eventually caught, and the people who detained him were anything but heroic. Geith Matar's story ends with not one, but multiple tragedies. His luck ran out when he was detained on September 6, 2011, by regime security forces, alongside his mentor, the famed activist Yahya Sherbaji, and his brother Man. Gaith and Yahya received a call from Man Sherbaji, saying that he had been injured at a protest. They immediately called a doctor they trusted and rushed to his location. Yahya also had a cousin check on the area, knowing that police might be waiting for them. The cousin told them that it was safe, he didn't see any cops, but it actually turned out to be an elaborate ambush set up by the regime. 
Gyeith and Yaya had no idea that the neighborhood was actually surrounded by Macabarat until it was already too late. The roadblocks made it impossible to escape by car, so they attempted to flee on foot until Gyeith was shot. He fell, and Yaya stopped to help him. Gyeith demanded that Yaya leave him, but the latter refused to abandon his friend. That was how the two ended up being arrested together. The Sherbaji brothers and what happened to them will be covered in a future episode. At one point, a macabre officer called Gyeith's brother and taunted him about giving Gyeith special treatment in the torture chamber. We don't know when or how exactly Gyeith Matar died. All we know for certain is that his corpse was received by his family four days later, covered in marks of torture and other mutilation while still handcuffed. These included burns from electric shocks, and his throat was cut either pre- or post-mortem. Some of his organs had also been removed. I've seen a screenshot of a video that someone took of Gyth's body. He looked... torn apart. He looked about as bad as Hamza Ali al-Khatib. He was clearly, quote, killed under torture, unquote. That's a phrase you see a lot when researching dissidents in Syria. All it took was handing out flowers and water to soldiers while peacefully protesting and calling upon other protesters to remain peaceful. That was all it took for Gyeith Matar to be subjected to an agonizing death at the hands of the Assad regime. He was 26 years old. His wife was 20 and expecting their first child. She named the baby after his deceased father. Lastly, the war that Gyeith Matar and other members of the Syrian opposition attempted to avoid did eventually come to pass. Some Syrians bristle when they hear Westerners say civil war or the Syrian civil war, a term that most of us casually throw around without a second thought in large part because that implies both sides are equally or close to equally to blame for the violence, death, and suffering that's taken place in Syria. Both sides have never been equal, especially in 2011. The regime was responsible for the vast majority of political violence in Syria and would go on to commit the vast majority of massacres and destruction in one of the 21st century's most appalling conflicts. Whether or not it was possible or even wise for the Syrian opposition to remain nonviolent, especially given the circumstances they faced in 2011 and 2012, is a debate for another time. For now, we're going to honor Syrians who attempted to secure freedom and justice by peaceful means. People like Jaith Matar. The next two people we're going to examine are best described as media activists, people who filmed protests taking place or otherwise worked to, to counter regime propaganda, which put them at tremendous risk for being detained, tortured, or killed. Basil Shahada hailed from a Christian family and was an adventurer by nature, as evidenced by his epic motorcycle ride 
from Syria to India by way of Iran and Pakistan while the Syrian revolution was starting in 2011. He went home and immediately got involved in the protests. As was often the case, members of the opposition started using skills and talents they had cultivated in the years prior to 2011 to help get the to help get the opposition's message out to an international audience. For Basel, this entailed filming protests and making documentaries about ordinary Syrians. Now, this had actually been a hobby of his for many years prior to the revolution taking place, but when the, when the protests broke out, this suddenly made him a very valuable member of the opposition. He was among the multiple artists and intellectuals who took part in a July 13th, 2011 protest in Damascus's upscale Al-Midan neighborhood. He also taught other Syrian activists how to make documentary films while covering the protests. Samar Yazbek was a writer and journalist who had already established a career for herself prior to 2011. She wanted to see the protests for herself and immediately realized that the state-owned media's coverage was being completely disingenuous. She witnessed unarmed, non-violent civilians being attacked and massacred while the government claimed it was fighting militias and armed insurgents. She wrote article after article about the regime's lies, which put her in the regime's crosshairs. In her memoir, A Woman in the Crossfire, Diaries of the Syrian Revolution, Samar Yazbek describes multiple horrific moments. I really wish I'd read this book before I started the podcast, to be honest, because it really is one of the best books out there about the Syrian revolution. If you want to get a feel for what it was like for Syrians, this book is up there with We Crossed a Bridge and It Trembled. I want to read a couple of passages from Samar Yazbek's book now. This is from A Woman in the Crossfire, Diaries of the Syrian Revolution. In this, she describes a scene that she witnessed and participated in pretty early in 2011 at one of the protests. Quote, I run away from the surging waves of people, and a hot wallop catches me across the back. I wheel around to look behind me, and all of a sudden, I see a leather strap in the hands of the security forces. I have no idea where the blow came from. Pain sears my lower back, moving down to the soles of my feet. Terrifying eyes stare at me. I start running as soon as I can stand, catching sight of the dead man's face a second time with the faces of murderers all around him. Who is opening fire? Where are the shots coming from? Maybe there are snipers. Maybe my head is a target. A young man shouts and points to a man on top of a building. Two young men grab me and pull me out of the group, screaming, Please get out of here, sister. Everyone here calls women sisters. Most women wear niqabs and the rest are veiled. I try to find one woman, someone to speak with more easily, but there are no women in the street. When I hear women screaming and the distant sounds of gunfire, I head back to the car. By the end of the day, I am going home with documents, documents of flesh and blood, of wailing and bullets and the faces of murderers who don't know where they're going. Feeling the need for a cigarette, I roll down the window and inhale smoke into my lungs. Harasta and Duma are behind me. My back hurts. The wailing and blood fill my head. The eyes of the young man sleeping like a gazelle. Suddenly, I hear a groan and look up at the driver in the mirror. 
the day's final surprise, the young man, tears pouring from his face, silent, unable to speak. In that moment, I hear nothing but the grinding of my own teeth, unquote. Samar Yazbek goes on to write, quote, There are no people of conscience opposed to the regime who haven't had to leave their homes. I know that most of my male and female friends who are former prisoners and spent long years in Syrian jails fled in order to avoid getting arrested because they never want to go back to that savage injustice. Things were more complicated for me amidst the campaign of detentions and raids and home invasions, since I was also trying to protect my daughter, even as she heard them call me a traitor and accuse me of being a spy. I wanted to wipe away the burdensome black days she spent in the village when I had to leave her there for fear she might be detained along with me when I left the house for the first time. We lived in fear, not fear in its familiar sense, but the kind of fear that makes me think about my daughter's destiny and how I have endangered her, about my family who have patiently and painfully suffered the consequences of my life in a conservative society, especially when I learned that my brother had started thinking about shooting himself after being subjected to attacks from people in the village because his sister was a traitor to the sect. My heart stopped for a few seconds. I realized that this was a situation where I had to do whatever I could to protect them, despite the fact that they were with the regime. Like most Alawites, they had been intimidated by the security forces and the Baathists into believing that the Sunnis would kill them all if Bashar al-Assad and his regime were to fall. Unquote. That was Samar Yazbek writing in her memoir, A Woman in the Crossfire. So two things. First, yeah, Samar was an Alawite, even though, even though Bashar al-Assad is an Alawite, even though the regime generally shows favoritism to Alawites, there were some Alawi people who recognized the regime for what it was, who realized that this corrupt and abusive institution was fundamentally wrong. There were Syrian people who looked at other Syrians in 2011 regardless of whatever religion either party came from, and they realized that they were both suffering under the regime, despite their sectarian differences. I should also say that Samar was raising a daughter in 2011, in addition to her activities in the Syrian revolution. She came from a regime-supporting Alawi family in Jabla, who went as far as to publicly disavow her in a Facebook post. Now, this was most likely intended to protect the family from the kind of retaliation that she described in the previous quote, as well as the treatment that she would eventually receive from the regime itself, which she details in this next quote from the memoir. I got to warn the listeners, this is going to be a long-ish quote, and it's just pretty horrific overall. This is from A Woman in the Crossfire, Diaries of the Syrian Revolution. Quote, I arrived in a strange place. Perhaps it was an Almeze, I could not be sure, but I found myself in a big office with the senior officer. He scowled at me, looking me up and down in disgust, as if he were staring at a squashed bug or a disintegrating corpse. Then he drew closer, grabbed me by the wrist, crushing my hands and burning my skin, and suddenly he slapped me in the face, knocking me to the ground. Then he spat on me. Bitch, he said. Unquote. 
She actually wrote down an even worse word. I just changed it there slightly. Quote, My eyes were shut and I could hear a loud ringing in my ears from the blow. I felt like I was losing my balance, like I was convulsing. I didn't get up. I didn't even try. He shouted at me to get up, but I really couldn't. My body was frail. I lost my balance. What a joke. A single slap made me fall down. He shouted, get up. I didn't move. I threw my head back, closed my eyes, and thought to myself, I'm not getting up. Let him do what he wants. The knife that I carried around in my purse was under my bra, the same small switchblade, and I thought about how if he or anyone else tried to insult me, I wouldn't hesitate to plunge the knife into his heart. Up until that moment, I had been thinking I was going to be detained for a long time. I knew their anger at me went beyond every kind of anger. I heard the sound of footsteps, and I felt his hand reach out and pick me up. I didn't exactly feel how he sat me down in the chair, but my head fell, and when I straightened myself out, the spinning in my head stopped. He laughed. Well, 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 what a hero. You went down with just one slap. I opened my eyes. I didn't cry. I wanted to cry. The slap was an insult but I, I wouldn't let him see my tears. I stared back at him. After running his finger along my cheek, he said, Isn't it awful when an angelic face gets hit? He slapped me a second time. Then he returned to his seat and launched into a long tirade about the ties of blood and kinship, about family and about betrayal, the same claptrap I'd been hearing about for years, about my betrayal and the shame I'd brought upon all those around me. When he stopped talking, I was staring at his palm and his fingers that I felt had left marks on my cheek, red marks that would turn blue in a day or two. What's wrong? Cat got your tongue, he asked. Your long tongue should be torn out. He hit me again. The slap was lighter this time. I stood up and pulled out my knife, brandishing it in his face, and I told him that if he continued beating me, I would plunge this knife into his heart and that I wouldn't let him or anyone else insult my dignity. He stood up, stupefied, staring at the black knife, and backed away from me a couple of steps. I flicked the switch, then the blade swung out, and I touched it against the center of my heart, which I could hear beating. A heavy silence. He was staring in shock. He drew near me again, and I backed away a step, saying, Don't come any closer. He stopped. He was staring in astonishment, and I stared back at him without blinking. What do you want? I shouted. We're worried about you, he said. You're being duped by Salafi Islamists if you believe what they're saying. I don't believe anyone, I said. I went out into the streets time after time, and I didn't see any Salafis. I saw how you kill ordinary people and arrest them and beat them. No, he said. Those are Salafis. They weren't Salafis, I told him. You and I both know that. If you keep on writing, he said, I'll make you disappear from the face of the earth. Go ahead, I said. Not just you, but your daughter as well. In that moment, my heart stopped beating. Sitting down behind his desk, he said, Put the knife down, you lunatic. We're honorable people. We don't harm our own blood. We're not like you traitors. You are a black mark upon all Alawites. I don't want anything to do with you and other Alawites like you on the outside. All right, what do you have to do then? I didn't respond, and he said, Go on Syrian TV and we'll agree on what you're going to say. Before he could finish, I shouted, I won't do it, not even if you kill me with your bare hands. 
staring him in the eyes, my sharp tone infuriating him. I said, save your breath. I won't do it. Just leave me alone. You leave us alone, he bellowed. I was silent. And all those articles now Quds al-Arabi on Facebook, your activities with the people, the demonstrations. What can I say? I'm inclined toward the truth, I said. He let out a resounding laugh and looked at me with pity. I put my knife away. I knew he wasn't going to harm me, not this time anyway. Later on, when I started compiling testimonies of male and female prisoners, I would learn that they had spoiled me. His phone rang. He stepped out and didn't talk in front of me. I came back after a few minutes. I was sad and afraid. This is your last warning, he said. From now on, you're aligned with the enemy. I'm not aligned with anyone, I said. I'm aligned with the truth. He laughed disdainfully and said, By God, I'd let the people spit on you in the street. I'd let your friends in the opposition spit on you, let you flop around like a fish out of water before even thinking of arresting you. Go on, get out of here. Two humongous men came into the room. They were standing there at the ready, dressed in civilian clothes, one of them on the right and the other one on the left. The senior officer pointed at me, and the two men stood up. They weren't violent. They held me like an object that was easy to move. They lifted me up from, from the chair by my, by my shoulders, which I didn't resist. I stood up. I found what was happening strange. Were they going to arrest me and put an end to this nightmare? Even that would be better than, than this madness. The officer looked at me scornfully, and I looked back at him, trying to judge what was about to happen. I was trying to divine the future from their eyes, from the movement of their bodies, and their behavior. He remained impassive, staring at a fixed point in that cavernous room. The two men placed a blindfold over my eyes, or that's what I assumed, because darkness suddenly blanketed the world. Blindfolded, I smelled a strange odor from the piece of cloth. Then a heavy hand took me, a hand balled in a fist around my elbow, and pulled me. I moved sluggishly, then stopped and shouted, Where are you taking me? He replied calmly, as if croaking, Just a short trip, so that you'll write better. I was sure they had decided to imprison me, but I wasn't scared. This was their ultimate recognition of my place in the opposition, and it removed me from all the acts of madness. I just wanted to discover that what had been happening for months was only a nightmare, and I was about to wake up from it soon. All of these thoughts shot through me in less than two minutes. I almost fell down on the ground despite the presence of these two men, one on each side, who were holding me up, calmly and elegantly. They must have had orders from him to behave like this. But when I almost fell again and they picked me up, I realized that we were going downstairs. One of them had to let me go. Apparently, it was a narrow staircase. I tried to see out underneath the blindfold, but it was on too tight, and I started having trouble breathing. I felt like we had descended several flights. I couldn't be sure. I started to get dizzy as putrid stenches mixed with strange odors I had never smelled before. We stopped finally. The searing pain shot up my back. I shuddered, knowing how frail my body was. A hand undid the blindfold from my eyes. I hadn't expected what awaited me to be so dreadful, despite the fact that everything in front of me was dark. Unquote. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit because there's a very long segment in the memoir where Samar Yazbek describes being taken into a torture chamber. They didn't do anything to her, at least physically, but they showed her what they were doing to people that they were arresting. 
and she even recognized some of the people being tortured in front of her. In effect, this was a form of psychological torture. It's pretty clear from reading this that this is probably one of the worst experiences of her entire life. I'll quote this passage in a future episode that focuses specifically on the prisons and the torture that went on there. But for the purposes of this episode, I'm going to skip ahead to when they let her out. Because even when they let her go, Samar Yazbek's ordeal wasn't over. Now we return to A Woman in the Crossfire, Diaries of the Syrian Revolution. Quote, As they hauled me out of there, I went home. I wasn't the person I had been before. I observed myself going into the house, a woman caught somewhere between life and death. I saw her toss a bunch of keys on the table and then light up her cigarette. The woman closed her eyes and put the blindfold back on, as though she were on stage, and those images of mutilated bodies returned. The laughter of her little girl and her mother's beautiful eyes flicker in front of her, a furtive glance of fleeting hope as she squeezes the blindfold hard enough to blind herself. She feels that deep, horrible hole starting to form inside her heart, and as the hole grows, this woman reaches her fingers deep inside all the way to her neck. The woman becomes a chasm of blisters and pus. Two days after the incident, one of their websites described me as a traitor and a foreign agent. Then a few days passed, and leaflets were thrown in front of the houses in Jabla and the surrounding villages about my being a foreign agent and a traitor, inciting people to kill me. What do they want from me now? I've already fled my house to live in secret. I no longer publish articles. Do they know about my activities with the young men and women? I don't think so. I was really scared for my daughter. I didn't go to my summons. I thought maybe they would forget about it amid everything that was happening. But I got a phone call. It was him. And in a raspy voice, he said, You bastard, even if you go to the ends of the earth, we'll get you. Trying to buy myself some time in order to catch up with what was happening in real life, I said, I haven't done anything. This is your last warning, he said. I was about to explode with rage. I had tried to hide. I refused to enter in any, any dialogue session with the authorities, even as some lines of communication were open between them and some of the opposition. I even disappeared from Facebook. What did he mean? Was it just to frighten me? To scare me into madness? It was as if I am living in a real-life novel. The characters and events need to be fleshed out, and the plot needs work if I'm going to be able to pull myself together, be strong, and take up the strands of my life once more. That's how writing toughens me against the hardships of life. As a novelist, I can be more accommodating with myself and with the interlocking strands of my life that are so hard to separate. I am untying a knot the way I would animate a puppet. But the difference is that I am the puppet and the strings and the big, mysterious, invisible hand. I tried to focus during those ten days when they came to my house, three or four men, and placed a blindfold over my eyes so we could all go back to the same officer's room. I didn't know whether that was really his office or or whether we actually were in the Algisar al-Abad neighborhood in Damascus or in Kafr Suse, distances had become meaningless to me ever since I moved. As the car went round, turn after turn, and then stopped, I would lose my concentration. The fourth time I went down to the cells, they didn't arrest me, and they didn't leave me there. I just wandered around. One day, I'll write all about those hellish journeys. I'll try to recall all the details of what happened, how I would come out of the house, and they would place the blindfold over my eyes as soon as I sat in the car, and in the moment the world would turn into a black hell. 
My soul suffered in silence as I was stuffed between two strange bodies, smelling them and becoming increasingly panicked with the blindfold on. I would imagine I was being forced into blindness as I waited for hands to run all over me. In that pitch blackness, I would take the same courage in similar situations I had read about as images rolled in front of my eyes. One time, and here I knew I had lost my wits, I believed blindness would be like a window shutting out the outside world. A secret door through which to enter the gloom, an opportunity to meditate upon the furthest reaches of the soul. Blindness became philosophical justice. That's how I, can that's how I would fight back against a black blindfold covering my eyes. I would pretend I was a character on paper, not made of flesh and blood, or that I was reading about a blindfolded woman forcibly taken to an unknown location to be insulted and spat upon because she had the gall to write something true that displeased the tyrant. At this point in my fantasy, I would feel strong and forget about how weak my body was, about the vile smells and the impending unknown." Unquote. That was Samar Yazbek writing in her memoir, A Woman in the Crossfire, Diaries of the Syrian Revolution. That passage right there is why I say this is one of the best books written about the topic we're talking about. Honestly, if you're listening to this podcast, Google A Woman in the Crossfire by Samar Yazbek. I highly encourage everyone to check out that book, buy that book, read it. It is worth your time. I promise you it the passage I read is pretty much as bad as it gets. From there, if you can handle that passage, you can handle reading the book. The only unique thing about Samar's abuse at the hands of the Syrian Makabarat was how relatively lenient they were with her because she was an Alawite instead of a practicing Sunni Muslim. But the other stuff, especially the random and repeated periods of detention, are things that a lot of people in this episode experienced throughout 2011. Samar and other Alawi people in the Syrian opposition have gone as far as to accuse the regime of using Syria's Alawi people as human shields. In the years to come, Alawi men will make up a disproportionate number of casualties in the fighting due to the regime's heavy reliance upon them as frontline soldiers and militiamen. Basil Shahada was also subject to multiple arrests and periods of torture most notably after the famous July 13th, 2011 Almidan protest, which was an ordeal exacerbated by his untreated diabetes. He was eventually released and earned a Fulbright scholarship to study film at Syracuse University. This could and really should have been a deserved happy ending for Basel, getting to move to the United States and establish himself as a talented documentarian. But he just couldn't do it. He couldn't live with leaving Syria behind while the protests continued. His conscience wouldn't allow him to enjoy a safe, comfortable life while his friends were being tortured and killed every single day. Basil Shahada dropped out of Syracuse University after only one semester and returned to Syria. He moved to Homs in early 2012 at a time when the Assad regime was escalating their siege against the city and going neighborhood by neighborhood, attempting to eradicate the opposition. He filmed the regime's atrocities, which included tanks indiscriminately bombing residential areas. Joining us from Damascus is a Syrian activist and filmmaker named Basil. 
He just returned from Homs. For security reasons, he asked we only use his first name. Basil, why don't we begin with you on the ground in Damascus where protests are taking place and you've just come out of Homs. Can you tell us what happened there? Hey, good morning, Amy. Uh, I just got back from Homs yesterday after spending one week there. The heavy bombing and shelling of the city continued for several days till the night of the Arab League delegation's arrival. I witnessed tanks withdrawal from Homs the morning before the observers arrived. And when you say bombing and shelling, you're saying that the, the Air Force was dropping bombs on the town as well as shelling it? Like, like bombing, like, like it's like, a, like, a, uh, like a missiles, like it's not an air bombing, but you can, you can hear and, 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 and see the, the bombing in the area. I do want to ask you about who is killing who uh, in Homs and uh, Hama uh, in Damascus right now. Tell us who the forces are. Actually, the violence in the city of Homs is like what I saw the last week. I was there. Like, is threatening to turn into like, a, a, like a, a, almost a civil war. A heavy crackdown on the city, punishing the rising area and killing the civilians, is forcing the locals to form like an armed resistance to the regime's forces, and they are supported by army deserters. So the fight is between the locals and the security forces and, and the supporters of the regime. Uh, the, the rising areas are besieged by the regime forces. I tried to cross to the besieged uh, area of Baba Amr uh, for three days, but I failed to enter this area. I witnessed, and, and actually I was shot by snipers when I was trying to cross to these areas. People are forced to fight back to block out the security forces and make their way out to provide food and supplies. So like, they, they, they are putting the people in the position like they have to defend themselves. This is what I saw in Homs. But the violence is, is raising and the tension is like becoming more high there. On May 28, 2012, after multiple large-scale massacres were committed by the regime in and around Homs, Basel Shahada was shot and killed during a government offensive in the Al-Safasa neighborhood. He was 28 years old. Samar Yazbek managed to escape with her life, fleeing the country in late 2011 and joining a free Syria that now largely exists in exile. She has continued her activism and written multiple books about Syria over the last 10 years, including... A Woman in the Crossfire, Diaries of the Syrian Revolution, which we just quoted, as well as 19 Women, Tales of Resilience from Syria, and most famously, The Crossing. I encourage everyone listening to go buy Samar Yazbek's books. They're worth it. Lastly, it's worth noting that Basil Shahada and Samar Yazbek, people from Christian and Alawi families, were living proof of the regime's lies. They weren't attacked or brutalized by crazed Salafi Islamists that the regime claimed were organizing the protests and or collaborating with Israel and other external enemies of Syria. The worst treatment they received was from the regime itself when they supported calls for reform, calls for freedom, calls for justice. They were targeted for exposing inaccuracies and fabrications in the regime's state-run media. Violent extremists did go on to play a significant role in the armed struggle against the regime. They did not, however, play a significant role in the revolution that preceded 
the war. The Syrian revolution was one where Muslims like Gaith Matar, Christians like Bas al-Shahada, and Alawis like Samar Yazbek cooperated to peacefully protest against a regime so vile and vicious that not even children and teenagers were safe from being tortured or murdered by the Makabarat. My name is Hadil Koke, and I am a 20 years old student from Syria. I am a human rights victim of President Bashar al-Assad. The Syrian ambassador told this council that his government is not to blame for the mass killings, and he pointed the finger to at others, both inside and outside the country. I have come here to be witness and to tell you that this is not true. Last year I distributed leaflets calling on Syrians to march peacefully in the name of freedom. I was a student at the University of Aleppo. I was arrested several times. I spent 52 days in prison. I was brutally tortured with electricity and abused badly by the security forces. They deprived me of my university. They tortured me more than usual because I am a Christian and they don't want minorities to participate in the revolution and show their opposition to Assad. They came again to arrest me for providing medical aid to injured protesters. I went into hiding with nomads in the desert. It was December, freezing cold. There was no heat or hot water. I was scared by the unknown future. Finally, I escaped to Turkey, then to Europe, and now Egypt. But even in Egypt, Assad's men attacked me in my house just 20 days ago. They beat me badly and threatened to throw acid on my face unless I stop my activities. What drives my activism? I want freedom. I have seen too much suffering of fellow Syrians who spend years in prison merely for expressing a thought. My people deserve to live in free, tolerant and democratic Syria. I ask, when will the killings stop? Do we not deserve the right to life? When will the world help us? Hadil Kuki was 19 years old in March 2011 when the protests began. She and other students at Aleppo University quickly joined the, the demonstrations calling for the regime to reform. She ended up being arrested several times by the Makabrat, once for distributing pro-democracy flyers and a couple other times simply for being present at protests. But her situation was complicated by the fact that she was a Syrian Christian. The Assad regime is often described as showing preferential treatment to non-Sunni Muslims, Alawis, Druze, Christians, etc. That's tr true to an extent, but as she described in the soundbite that I played for you, they would subject Christians and Alawis and Druze and other non-Sunni Muslims to severe torture oftentimes in an attempt to intimidate those communities out of joining the protests. I want to turn next to a quote from a Washington Times article titled, Syrian Christians Feel Pull from Both Sides in Civil War. This was written in 2012. Quote, Hadil Kuki, 20 years old, a Christian activist studying at the University of Aleppo, was imprisoned for more than 50 days and tortured after she was arrested once for distributing pro-democracy flyers, and twice for joining demonstrations. This regime under no terms could be considered as a protector of minority rights or of Christians, said Ms. Kuki at a speech this year. Ms. Kuki said that the regime deliberately stokes fears of a hard-line Islamic opposition 
to create sectarian divisions among Syrians and deter minorities from joining the revolution. She also accuses Christian leaders of failing to speak out. Now they quote her in the article, quote, None of the Christian figures or leaders asked for us when we were being tortured or beaten in Assad's prisons, she said. Why don't you stand by us? Unquote. That was a quote from a Washington Times article titled, Syrian Christians Feel Pull from Both Sides in Civil War. Eventually, in December of 2011, after being detained multiple times by the regime and subject to all the various horrors that one experiences while being detained by the Assad regime, after going through that multiple times, Hadil learned in December 2011 that they were planning to arrest her again. And honestly, who could blame her for fleeing this time? I mean, most rational human beings would run away if they heard Assad wanted them arrested, even if they'd never been through it before and couldn't imagine what it would be like. She knew what was going to happen to her. She had seen it happen to other people, if not already experienced it herself. So Hadil Kuki came up with a really clever plan to escape from Syria. I got to say, this is one of, the, one of the most clever ones I've seen. It involved a Facebook post where she went on there and she's saying, I'm having such a great time on this vacation in Sweden. Everybody who was looking for her, they saw that Facebook post and they were just like, what the hell? How did she end up in Sweden? She actually wasn't, though. She had left Aleppo and was hiding out in this remote desert area in Syria until she could link up with some people affiliated with the Free Syrian Army who helped smuggle her across the border to Turkey. And from there, she managed to make her way to Europe. Eventually, she moved to Egypt, where she continued her activism against the regime until a very unfortunate episode we're about to get into. But before we get into the aftermath of Hadil Kuki's activism in Syria, just in case anybody listening to this thinks I've spent too much time talking about non-Muslims who participated in the Syrian revolution, just in case you think I'm not giving enough representation to mainstream Sunni Muslims, I've got a great one for you. Majd Izzat al-Shirbaji. Her story is one of the most incredible I've seen, frankly, of anyone who participated in the 2011 Syrian revolution. This really, really brave woman is from Daraya, the same place where Gaith Matar was from. And she participated, she started participating in protests pretty much as soon as they started. She ended up being arrested and experiencing beatings and other forms of police brutality multiple times. And she just, no matter how many times she got knocked down, no matter how many times she got hurt, she kept getting back up and she kept non-violently resisting in one form or another. For more on this, we turn to a, an article written for the Des Moines Register by Rekha Basu titled, Celebrate Her Courage, Honor Her Pain. Quote, Speaking in Arabic through an interpreter, she describes being beaten in prison with sticks until her body was completely bruised. She says her hands were cuffed behind her back and a rope attached from the cuffs to the ceiling. Unquote. And honestly, that is a very mild taste of the sort of treatment that Mahajizad al-Shirbaji and other women experienced in Assad's prisons. Now, for anybody, being stuck in one of those places is hell on earth. But at the risk of sounding old-fashioned, I think we need to acknowledge that it's definitely worse for women in that environment for reasons that really should be obvious. But just in case it's not, I'm going to turn now to a couple paragraphs in Wendy Perlman's book, We Crossed a Bridge and It Trembled. 
This is a part where she quotes Bilal, a doctor from Harasta, who spent time in one of these prisons. And I gotta warn you, this is gonna be a really, really horrific quote. It's not gonna be as bad as what we saw in the last episode, but it's, it's, it's gonna be rough. Trigger warning, violence, sexual assault, all that stuff. Quote, There were 80 people in our cell. Without nutrition, we all became like skeletons. People were always sick, and everyone had eye infections. As a doctor, I'd try to take care of them, but I couldn't help much. I'd just tell everyone, when it's your time to go to the bathroom, try to splash your eyes with water, unquote, real quick. So one of the ways that the regime will torture people is that they will deny them medical care after they've been severely mistreated. They won't tend to your wounds after they've beaten you and whipped you and burned you with electric shocks. They won't give you medical treatment if suddenly your diabetes acts up or you develop an infection or one thing or another. And you will not be given the medical care you need, which is a recognized abuse of human rights. Now back to the quote from Bilal, the doctor from Harasta. Quote, My cellmates respected me, so they let me stay near the small gate. There I could breathe a little and also see light from the corridor. Our cell was near the women's cell, and sometimes they'd come for a specific girl, calling out her name and the name of her town. We knew that they were raping her, because they always took her during the shift of a particular officer. From the small window, I could see she was about 16 years old and looked sick and miserable. She wore a headscarf, but they would rip it off. Unquote. That was Bilal, a doctor from Harasta, quoted by Dr. Wendy Perlman in her book, We Crossed a Bridge and It Trembled. It was in that hellishly horrific environment that Majd Iza al-Shirbaji did something just incredible. She organized a hunger strike. She got 150 cellmates of hers, 150 women who had been detained with her, to go on a hunger strike. They're already being intentionally starved to death, but she brilliantly realized that one person dying of torture or starvation here and there is one thing. 150 people going all at once is something the regime would be afraid of. Maybe that, that might sound counterintuitive, but it worked. She was right. The, the, this hunger strike that Sherbaji organized resulted in the prisoners finally having their cases presented to a judge. That was one of their demands. They managed to non-violently resist the regime while being tortured in prison, got their cases heard by a judge, and this resulted in her and 83 out of these 150 detainees being released. I mean, this, I, I just, I personally find this to be one of the most fascinating stories I've come across of non-violent resistance to the Assad regime in 2011. I mean, being out in the streets and being shot at by the soldiers in Shabiha is one thing. But doing this in prison of all places? I never imagined something like this was possible. I mean, what Majd Izzat al-Shirbaji accomplished in 2011, along with all the other times where she bravely went out into the streets to protest the regime, to face beatings by the police, or shooting from the soldiers. Her courage is just undeniable. Her bravery, her audacity, frankly, and imagination. Almost anyone would have given up in her circumstances, but she didn't. 
Now, I, I have a lot of respect for everyone that we talk about in this episode, but Majdazad al-Shirbaji is definitely someone whose story stood out to me. Ultimately, Hadil Kuki and Majdazad al-Shirbaji show two different sides of the nonviolent Syrian opposition. On the one hand, you have, you've got this Christian college student who dresses like a Westerner. From what I've seen and read, she comes off as a relatively liberal figure. And on the other hand, you have Majizad al-Shirbaji, who is, not only is she Muslim, she also wears a hijab. She's also, from what I can tell, a more conservative figure. But what they both have in common was, is not only bravery in opposing the, in openly opposing the Assad regime, but also their insistence on nonviolence. But whether we're talking about liberals or conservatives or Christians or Muslims, another thing that Hadil and Majd have in common is that they suffered as a result of their activism, and so did their families. Both of these people were eventually granted asylum outside of Syria. They both had to flee in 2011. In the case of Majdazad al-Shirbaji, after she was released, she noticed that she was being followed by the macabre. And she realized that she needed to take her three kids and get out of Syria. That's another thing I forgot to mention. Majdazad al-Shirbaji was already married with children when the 2011 Syrian revolution started. That was another complicating factor. And sadly, her husband was also detained by the regime he is believed to have died in captivity. So Hadil fled to Egypt and Majd fled to Lebanon. But that wasn't even the end of the story for Hadil. She suffered a horrific home invasion in 2012, which she alleges was perpetrated by Syrian intelligence officers. They badly beat her up. And I, I've seen a photo of her shortly after the incident where she has this really horrific looking black eye. They beat her up. They threatened to throw acid in her face. And they were basically just trying to intimidate her into dropping out of the Syrian opposition, into dropping her activism. She didn't give up, but she realized that Egypt was no longer a safe place for opponents of the Assad regime. She now lives in a different country. We're going to go over Hadil Kuki's home invasion in a, in a separate episode. I want to do an episode in the future focusing on the ways that the Assad regime persecutes dissidents abroad. They don't settle for simply going after everybody on their soil. If somebody is high profile enough, if somebody has gotten under their skin enough, they will send people to other countries after them. And this is a reality that members of the Syrian opposition outside of Syria, the exiled citizens of free Syria, this is a reality they have to live with. I mean, how scary is that? You, you were forced to leave your home because of the most horrific war in the world going on at that time. And then when you settle into a new country as a refugee, you're supposed to be safe. And yet, despite that, you still live with the fear that one day you might get a knock on your door, or worse, you'll open the door and find them in your home. By them, I mean the Syrian macabre and their agents. Even people outside of Syria don't feel safe from the Assad regime. And it's incidents like Hadil Kuki's home invasion that have created this sense of fear all over the world. So whether we're talking about Christians like Hadil Kuki, Alois like Samar Yazbek, or Muslims like Majdizad al-Shirbaji, the ultimate through line with all this is that the regime forced these people to leave Syria. They forced them and their entire families to leave. They've subjected these people and their entire families to all kinds of different suffering. I'm going on and on and on trying to point out how diverse the Syrian opposition really was. 
because all the time there's always this weird obsession people in the West have with making everything in the Middle East about religion. Oh, no, these people can't have politics. It's all Islam stuff. It misses so much important context. The Syrian revolution was not a sectarian movement. The civil war that came afterward, there was some sectarian stuff there. But in 2011 specifically, the Assad regime is clearly the far more sectarian entity. They are the ones who look at one particular group of people and want to keep them separate from another group of people. They are the ones doing that, and they went to great, oftentimes horrific lengths to make that happen. What the regime didn't realize in 2011 was that intimidation alone wasn't going to bring the revolution to an end. And as the opposition gained more and more and more momentum, more members of the opposition started trying to find ways to replace the services provided by the regime, to try to provide an alternative for people who found themselves dependent upon the regime for one thing or another. For this, I want to turn to a woman named Iman Shahoud. She really stands out for her efforts, contributions to Syrian civil society in 2011. Most notably, as the Assad regime started to lose control of some places, she and other legal professionals in Syria came together to form almost an alternative judicial system, a free Syrian Judiciary Council, which would enable self-administration of areas that had been abandoned by the regime. It's, it's just a really great middle finger to the Assad regime. When, when the regime abandoned these areas, they just they were so presumptuous. They were like, oh, it's going to collapse into anarchy and the people will beg for us to come back. They'll come crawling back to us. Iman saw through that. She and her friends helped prevent that. She was like, oh yeah, we don't need you anymore. And this really speaks to how the Syrian opposition, the local coordination councils, they really did try to create a new state. So, and they really tried to create an alternative, a, a viable alternative to the Assad regime. One that not only existed, but also was better than what had come before. Rather than engage in the typical kinds of corruption that dominate the Assad regime's judicial system, if you could even call it that, Iman Shahoud and her colleagues came together to form a clean judicial system where people could come together, hear out cases, and have trained legal professionals argue cases in court and come to settlements, all that stuff. This is the kind of thing people typically don't think about when we talk about revolution or civil war. We think about all the fun stuff like, oh yeah, we're fighting the evil bad guys, but they never think about replacing the government that they're trying to overthrow. They never think about providing the services that were previously provided by the oppressive regime you're trying to overthrow. That's the really cool thing about Iman Shahoud. She and her colleagues did think about that and they did try to deliver on that. They did great work trying to help areas abandoned by the regime to govern themselves. She, I mean, this right here, when we talk about free Syria, that's something you'll often hear from, from members of the Syrian opposition. They will describe themselves as free Syrians. When we talk about free Syria, that is usually just an idea or an identity rather than a place. But with the Free Syrian Judiciary Council, you have a real institution being built. That is super important. And if things had gone differently in 2011 and 2012, if Bashar al-Assad had fallen, this 
could have been a major step in replacing the regime. This could have been a major first step towards creating a new government, a better government. Now, sadly, things didn't quite work out that way. But what Iman Shahood shows us is that if Assad had fallen, it wouldn't, at least in 2011, things probably wouldn't have automatically fallen into a chaotic, bloody civil war, as, was, as many people have claimed, fraudulently. What we see in the case of the Free Syrian Judiciary Council was that people were trying to come together and create something rather than just slap together some stuff in the heat of the moment once Assad fell like everybody assumed they would. Syrian civil society in 2011 made real attempts to create a new, better government. A new, they tried to create new, better institutions. They real, they had a, they had a goal in mind for what they were trying to work towards. They, they weren't just recklessly sliding into anarchy. They had, they were strategizing. They were talking. They were, they had an idea of what they wanted to work towards, and they tried at great risk. A lot of these people were either arrested or killed. They tried to, to create a more fair and just Syrian judicial system. One, one thing I didn't expect when I started when I started this podcast, one thing I didn't expect was just how lawyers and judges played a really, really important role in the Syrian opposition. So we see that it's not just working class people who protested in 2011 and opposed the regime. It wasn't just Sunni Muslims who opposed the regime. It wasn't just liberal young people who opposed the regime. We see a wide cross-section of society, including conservatives, including non-Muslims, including middle-aged, established people with careers who sacrificed all that because they wanted to help their country. So Iman Shahoud, she gets over, she often gets overlooked, but she, we really do need to honor her and her colleagues for what they attempted to do with the Free Syrian Judiciary Council. The next person we're going to look at is somebody who is definitely going to pop up in future episodes. Amani Balur is a woman from Huta. In 2011, she was studying at Damascus University to be a pediatrician, but as was the case for everybody else we've talked about in this episode, her life completely changed in 2011 with the outbreak of the protests. The turning point for her was when a 12-year-old boy was shot in the head and brought to her for medical treatment, shot by regime security forces, I should say. Now, keep in mind, it wasn't safe for protesters in 2011 to go to hospitals, even if they had been beaten up or shot, because they might still be handed over to the regime at the hospitals. That's why when this 12-year-old boy was shot in the head, his family took him to a random medical student rather than to a hospital. And sadly, by the time they found Dr. Amani Balur, the boy had already died of his wounds. This incident set Amani Balur down a path where she ended up becoming one of many brave Syrian medical professionals who really risked their lives, no exaggeration, risked their lives to provide medical care to people who had been shot or otherwise injured by the regime's brutality. We're going to talk about her a lot in future episodes, in particular in the context of the regime's campaign of deliberately targeting hospitals. 
Now, when I say hospitals, some of these are real hospitals. Some of these are makeshift medical centers in people's apartments. But what they all have in common is that they, for the last 10 years, have oftentimes been targeted for bombing, for bombardment by the Assad regime and their allies like Russia. Dr. Amani Balur was later featured in the documentary The Cave. The last thing I want to mention about her is just to remind you all that she was from Huta. Eastern Huta ended up becoming one of the most war-ravaged places in Syria as the years went on. This is where the Assad regime perpetrated their most notorious chemical attack in 2013, resulting in well over a thousand deaths in a single neighborhood. It was in conditions like this that Dr. Amani Balur bravely worked to try to somehow reduce the number of deaths taking place every single day, even though they were understaffed and undersupplied, even though she was just one of a, one of a few doctors who were having to treat conditions the likes of which they never thought they would be called to deal with. That's what happens when you don't have certain surgeons or specialists on hand and somebody's about to die if you don't immediately do something. She was the person who would immediately do something and do the best she could to help people when nobody else was around, at least nobody else who had gone to medical school. Ultimately, I think what this episode shows us is that when Westerners, when Western observers comment on Syria, there's a disproportionate emphasis on the armed conflict and the armed combatants. And we really should have been paying more attention to the ordinary civilians, as well as nonviolent individuals who attempted to do good rather than do harm. Like the Hippocratic Oath says, do no harm. And Dr. Amani Balur went above and beyond her oath from 2011 up until very recently when she finally left Huta. We'll go into this in a future episode, but eventually Huta and other parts of Damascus were eventually taken back by the regime from the armed opposition in 2018. This resulted in Balur and others from that area being forced to leave. A lot of them went to Idlib. That's a province that is still, at least in 2021, currently being held by opponents of the Assad regime. Although, given the fact that a lot of them are jihadists, well, they might not be as bad as Assad. They're not necessarily great guys either. So some of these people from Huta, they went to Idlib because they had nowhere else to go, at least in Syria. And for those who didn't want to live in Idlib, a lot of them, including Amani Balur, ended up in refugee camps in Turkey instead. Dr. Balur is now currently living in exile. Now, perhaps you might be wondering, why were so many people willing to take so many risks in 2011? Why were they willing to risk their lives? Why were they willing to risk torture? Why did they keep going back out into the streets even if they had been arrested and tortured and released? Why is it that the Syrian opposition wasn't willing to give up in 2011? For more on this, I want to turn now to a quote from a book titled Civil War in Syria by Adam Boxo, Arthur Cusney, and Giles Doronsoro. It's oftentimes referred to as Boxo et al. Quote, The emotional ties between the protest groups were strong, with consistent references to them being like a second family. At a protest level, once these activist pockets knew that the police were after them, they reached a point of no return. 
crossing over into clandestiny with some resorting to violence. Due to the specificities of this engagement, a revolutionary social capital grew out of the collective action. The anonymity of the protest movement, however, meant that this new social capital was different from the earlier one. As the protesters emphasized, the ties forged within small groups of activists and during the demonstrations were novel. They now quote a protester, quote, Before the revolution, I didn't know the people with whom I formed a group. It was through our protests, our discussions, the risks we took together that we got to know each other. Now back to the book. The intensity of the discussions and the shared risk-taking caused an emotional community to coalesce. It enabled the closure of the group, a process essential for the formation of social capital. The rising number of killings by security forces also contributed to forging stronger intra-group bonds out of loyalty to fallen comrades. Many of our interviewees characterized this feeling of brotherhood as comparable with family ties. The group to which I belonged quickly became a real family. I spent more time with them than with my own family. It's been with them since I feel happiest. Everything that happened since 2011, I have shared with them. Adherence to shared moral values also conditioned group membership. Activism was experienced subjectively as altruistic, as opposed to the instrumentalized sectarian membership in pre-revolutionary Syria. The strong moral dimension was a form of denial of the utility of social relations akin to one found, for example, among Western privileged classes. In a context of biographical disruption due to the initial conditions of the protest, the activists' solidarity seemed relatively unpredictable vis-a-vis -vis their pre-2011 social positions. It would be going too far to characterize these unlikely connections as suspending the rigidities of social order, but subjectively, these new ties appear to obey different rules, hence the nostalgia, or euphoria even, that we noted during our interviews. They now quote another protester, quote, In 2011, everything began to move. It was fascinating. More than fear, I remember the effervescence and the strength of, our link, strength of the links that tied our small group together. During our actions, we met many people from all sorts of backgrounds. During our actions, we met many people from all sorts of backgrounds. Now back to the book. This is how a peaceful protest movement against the regime incubated the conditions for a social revolution. Boxo and the others go on to write, quote, Agendas and repertoires were synchronized via mass media and especially the internet. International news channels helped create a sense of belonging to a national protest movement and fed copycat demonstrations which, however, remained local in an organizational sense. In the beginning, there were attempts made at coordination, with repeated calls for unity on Facebook. This informal social media campaign failed to produce a unified organization at a national or even local level. However, the uniformity of both the slogans and the repertoires of contention at the national level raised the question of what bottom-up coordination there was. As it were, young Syrians were already part of a generation that was streaming its private life. Demonstrating was, for Syria's youth, an extraordinary development. It was their first anti-regime protest at a historic moment. The Gulf News Channels, Al Jazeera, and Al Arabiya made these videos accessible to anyone who had a satellite dish. The demonstrators could therefore watch on television and on the internet 
how others went about protesting, the demonstrations hence gradually gained the consistency that came with a shared repertoire, which allowed the protesters to see themselves as part of a national movement. Prisons also became a meeting place for protesters since, after arrest and torture, the people no longer needed to conceal their identity. Hundreds of thousands of people passed through the regime's prisons, mostly in overcrowded cells. They now quote one of the inmates, quote, There were dozens of us in a cell for weeks, and then the regime would transfer us, sometimes to another city. So I met far more protesters in jail than I could have outside, where our protests only lasted a few minutes. I learned a lot this way about the regime's techniques and about our strength. Now back to the book. Prisoners from throughout the country got to know each other this way and could exchange information on cities that were, ex- that were inaccessible, such as Dara and Jisr al-Shagur. Released activists would often disseminate information and contact the families of their former fellow prisoners. In a densely connected society, Skype and Facebook became permanent coordination tools with the use of pseudonyms that were relatively safe, apparently being poorly monitored by the regime. Discussion groups and forums sprang up on Facebook, and networks grew between individuals using Skype who did not know each other before the protests. Online social networks became a way of circulating slogans and information on future protests. Thus, they allowed a national movement to take shape in the absence of any specialized or hierarchical structures. For instance, via Facebook, protesters could participate in weekly nationwide polls for choosing the slogan for the next Friday march. Social networks became platforms of expression without a formal hierarchy, but where cultural capital and technical skills introduced a new bias. To sum up, social media made coordination possible without additional logistical resources, and their use fed a sense of belonging to the revolution. Unquote. That was from Civil War in Syria, written by Adam Baxo, Arthur Kuzney, and Giles Doran Soro, or as academics love to put it, Baxo et al. There's one anecdote in particular I found that I think really does a great job illustrating the point made in the quote we just read. Sarah Hunaidi was a teenager from Sueda in southern Syria, a member of the Druze community. In 2011, she posted some anti-regime stuff on her Facebook page, which not only got her threats, but also got her in trouble with her own family and her community. Because, as we've often said, the Assad regime goes out of its way to really, really ingratiate themselves with the non-Muslim religious communities in Syria, like Alawis, Christians, and Druze. So she was already in trouble before she went to her first protest. So when her family tried to stop her from going to her first protest, she snuck out a window. She climbed out of her room through a window to sneak out of the house. She was only a teenager at the time. She knew what kind of risk she was facing. But but she had developed a sense of solidarity with people over social media, over modern mass communication that motivated her to also go out in the streets and take real-world action. Also, at the risk of being repetitive, Sarah is a Druze, not a Sunni Muslim, certainly not a Salafi extremist. So once again, we have another example of the claim that the protesters were all sectarian extremists who just want to kill all the Alawites and the Druze. We see, once again, that's bullshit. 
I know I'm probably being repetitive, but sometimes you got to bang people over the head with evidence over and over again in order to break through certain people's preconceived biases. So Assad's rhetoric from the start of the uprising has been uh, about protecting minorities. But this rhetoric, um, like practiced for decades, uh, only hurts, of course, the national solidarity between Syria's religious sectors. And it only, of course, divides. Um, however, it's it's a really, uh, it's playing on fears. So um, it's not really a truth. It is, uh, you know, a political tool. But we see um, in Assad's prisons, we have activists from all religious backgrounds, including those minorities, um, and Christians and Alawites and Druze. Now that we're nearing the end of this episode, we're going to turn now to three of the most famous members of the Syrian opposition that we haven't talked about yet. The first two are May Scaff and Fadwa Suleiman. I think most people listening to this can probably guess who's going to show up at the very end. I'm not going to say just yet. I'm saving it as a surprise. May Scaff was a Christian from Damascus, and Fadwa Suleiman was an Alawi from Aleppo. Both of, the, both of these women were actresses. They, they, had, they were both in their 30s and had established careers after years of hard work in 2011. They did not have to give that up in 2011. If May Scaff and Fadwa Suleiman had wanted to, they could have stayed silent and they would have kept their careers. Yeah, their lives would have been disrupted by the war, but they could have, if they had wanted to, stayed silent and kept something resembling their normal lives. They could have kept their careers intact. They sacrificed that. They sacrificed so much because they wanted to do the right thing. They sacrificed their careers, and ultimately they sacrificed the lives that they had come to know as a result of refusing to stay silent during the Syrian revolution. I mean, it's one thing for somebody like Hadil Huki or Sarah Hunaidi, teenagers. It's one thing for teenagers to oppose the regime. It's another thing entirely for somebody like Meskaf or Fadwa Suleiman or Samar Yazbek, people who are older and have established lives for themselves. It's another thing entirely for those people to sacrifice everything they built over the last two or three decades simply because they felt it was the right thing to do. Meskaf and Fadwa Suleiman, despite having prosperous careers, despite being from Christian and Alawi families who live pretty well compared to the average Sunni Muslim, despite all of that, they saw what was going on in their country. They saw how their fellow citizens were being treated, and they couldn't stay silent. They had to go out and join the protests and make their opposition known. And since these people were already relatively famous, these were actresses, remember, or actors, sorry. These are people whom Syrians had seen on TV and in movies. These people joining the protests was a big deal, and the regime responded very harshly to both of these people. Mayskaf in particular was arrested at least once, if not multiple times, and she had a really, really horrible time in prison. That that quote from Wendy Perlman's book that I read you about that I read to you about the medical neglect, the torture, the beatings, the sexual violence, she experienced a lot of that herself. She went on to accuse Syrian police officers of rape. Eventually she was released in late 2011, 
And once she was released, she quickly got out. She could not go through that again. And nobody can fault her for that. Most people would have done what she did, which was get out immediately once she had the chance to. Fadwa Suleiman, on the other hand, as far as I can tell, the regime never managed to apprehend her, but she did end up spending several months on the run, fugitive moving across the country. And it was in this period as a fugitive that she ended up traveling to a city called Homs. Now, Homs in particular is really famous in Syria for being part of the Sunni heartland. It's nowhere near as diverse as, say, Damascus or Aleppo. Homs is very, you see a lot more out and proud Islamism in Homs, a lot more so there than in other parts of Syria. And yet, she as an Alawite, not only did she hang out with these people, not only did she participate in protests in Homs, she was even invited to stand with some high-profile protest leaders in Homs, including the person we're going to talk about next. There's a really, this is a really iconic moment in the Syrian revolution, where these Muslim guys in Homs are standing on top of a car leading protest chants. And she's standing in the crowd watching and chanting with them. And then they recognize her because she's a famous actress. And they invite her up to stand on, the, on top of the car with them. They help her climb up and stand with them. These Muslim men alongside an Alawi woman. It, was, it, it sent a powerful message that this is not a sectarian movement. This is a Syrian movement. This is about Syrians opposing a regime, not Muslims opposing non-Muslims. This is a really powerful, iconic moment in the Syrian revolution. Ultimately, though, she was eventually forced to leave the country, moving from place to place, and even cutting her hair short to look more like a male. That wasn't enough. She did eventually have to leave the country in order to avoid being arrested and tortured the way that May Scaff was. Fadwa Suleiman and her husband fled to Lebanon in 2012, and eventually they moved to Paris. This is where things get really sad, both for Fadwa Suleiman and May Scaff. Both of these women settled in France after they left Syria. And I know what you're probably thinking. You're probably going to say that, like, the regime hunted them down and killed them. Both of these women died of natural causes very shortly after leaving Syria in 2012. In May Staff's case, she passed away in 2018 at the age of 49. Her cause of death is alternatively listed as a heart attack or stroke. There are some people who speculate she may have been poisoned, but frankly, I don't buy it. She had lived in exile for years, probably dealing with various forms of emotional and psychological trauma, possibly even physical trauma. I could very easily see how she probably developed high blood pressure and some other medical ailments exacerbated by not only ongoing daily stress relating to Syria, as well as post-traumatic stress disorder and other psychological factors. I really don't believe that May Scaff was assassinated. Frankly, most Syrians don't believe it either. And it's not to say that it, it's not to say that it's completely impossible something like that would happen, but if it was going to happen, it probably would have happened a lot sooner than 2018. I hate to say it, but I really do think May Scaff's story ends with a really tragic and untimely example of natural causes. And this is also the case with Fadwa Suleiman. Even though she managed to escape from Syria and also settled in France, she was diagnosed with cancer in the mid-2010s. 
this cancer ultimately took her life on August 17th, 2017. She was 47 years old, just six years after the Syrian revolution started, six, just about six years after she stood on top of that car with those guys in Homs, she passed away. It's just proof that life's unfair. Mayskaf and Fadwa Suleiman were heroes, and they deserved a better ending to their stories than this. And honestly, almost every Syrian has deserved better than what they got over the last 10 years. Now we are on to our final hero that we're going to talk about today, our final hero of the Syrian revolution. And before we tell you his name, you might recognize his voice. A revolutionary folk song by a proud folk hero. But singing about freedom in Syria can get you killed. At just 20 years old, Abdul Basit Sarut has put his promising professional career as a footballer on hold. He says what's happening in Syria is all part of God's plan. It's a big responsibility to lift people's morale, and we always try to stay optimistic about the future. The more optimistic we are, the more the revolution keeps going. Sarut says Syrians are sick and tired after 40 years of rule by what he calls a monstrous regime. And he knows its cruelty all too well. His career change came at a huge cost. The government killed his brother and many of his closest friends. He says their bodies were tossed into the street and driven over by tanks. A harsh warning to his followers. There's something I want to tell everyone. I've lost one of my brothers, but this is something I shouldn't be saying because we've lost about 13,000 people and a lot of people have been detained or disappeared. My brother has been martyred, like so many other people, and they're all like my brothers. Everyone who loses someone will feel loss, and I know their feeling. It's a big honor for every family to say, we have a martyr in this family. Yeah, that's right, people. We're talking about Abdul Basit al-Sarut. We're finally talking about this iconic figure. 
I got to confess to y'all, though, I only recently learned about this guy, and I figured to really do him justice, it would be good to bring on somebody who was aware of him and had followed him since 2011 to really explain why he's he means so much to the Syrian opposition. Would you like to introduce yourself, sir? Hi, uh, thanks, Sean. Thanks for having me. Um, so for the purposes of this podcast, I'm going to go by my Twitter handle, um, Proud Damascene. Um, not not no, not a very big Twitter user, um, uh, sort of like a, um, I have a micro following in the niches of Syrian Twitter, I sort of dive in between Arabic and English. Um, but, uh, yeah, I was, uh, I was not born and raised in Syria. I think I should do that and make that clear at the start of this, um, episode. I was, um, born and raised elsewhere, but I did, uh, frequently visit Syria up until 2011 and, um, my relationship with the Syrian revolution has always been the most intimate thing I have and um, the most important thing to me and above and beyond everything else. But um, I'm excited to, you know, be here with you and to talk about Abdelbasit Sarut and, you know, anything else um, connected to him um, and to talk through his life journey. Thank you so much for coming on, man. It's, from what little I've seen, I, I've, I've done everything I can to read about him, to try to find reliable English language sources about him. But I, I just feel like I can't properly put into words why this guy stood out so much. If somebody had never heard of Abdul Basid al-Sarut, how would you describe the guy to him? It's a really good question. I think I'd probably say he was a larger than life figure. Hell yeah, that's the yeah. that's the figure that I'd go with. That's the, the the phrase that I'd go with. Um, he's someone who um sort of, and, and this is a really um, important point to note. He hated um, and we'll we'll get onto this, but he hated being an icon. He would always say in interviews, "Please don't consider me an icon, even at the height of his fame." But despite his best efforts, he is an icon and remains an icon. Um, and we'll get on to why that is. But he, he was a larger than life figure for most Syrians, even despite his simplicity, despite how humble he was throughout his life and how, you know, he, he was, he was always smiling and he was always happy to, you know, take the time to talk to anyone and everyone and to take pictures with anyone and everyone. Um, despite all of that, he was a larger than life figure to, to in, in the eyes of many Syrians. Yeah. I mean, honestly, if, if Abdul Basid al-Sarut was a fictional character, if like I were to write a novel about Syria and just created him as a character, people would just be like, it's unbelievable. No person in the world is like this. But when you watch videos of him, or especially if you watch the documentary Return to Homs, you, you can see why the camera's all focused on him. He's just amazing. So, so, let, so let's start off talking about his, uh, his early life. I want to turn to a, a quote from an article from aljumharaya.net. This is a really great detailed biography they wrote about this guy. Um, I'm just going to read a couple paragraphs to give the listeners some context. Quote, Abdul Basid al-Sarut was born in 1999 in Homs's Al-Bayada neighborhood, unquote. Did I say that right? Al-Bayada? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Back to the quote. Quote, one of the many impoverished districts that sprung up haphazardly in and around Syria's major cities over the course of decades, to the point that by 2011, around half of the residents of Damascus and Aleppo were housed in these run-down, poorly constructed suburbs in which life was a daily nightmare. Unquote. 
And the article goes on to describe things like buildings, like having literally no electricity or water. These, uh, these kind of these um, unplanned communities where a lot of these, correct me if I'm wrong, these are, a lot of these people were like people who were displaced from the countryside during a drought specifically, or am I getting that mixed up? Um, so my knowledge on, on, on this particular area is limited. What I will say is that um, these factors, um, including where he was born and where he grew up, and of course this isn't just limited to Homs or Al-Bayada, but various places around the country suffered a similar um, situation. Um, and it is really important to highlight because one of the narratives that we're trying to fight is that um, you know everything was fine prior to the 2011 uprisings and um you know you get a lot of um extremely offensive questions like you know was it all worth it and you know weren't syrians happy before well what syrians are you talking about are you talking about syrians in you know rich um damascus suburbs where a lot of regime officials lived and a lot of you know wealthy business persons lived or are you talking about the places where people like abdul basit sarut were born and raised and um so you know I, I can't comment specifically on you know the, the the geographical elements of where people were displaced to and from of course you know the environmental um issues in syria you know precede 2011 i'm sure that they had a role to play in where people moved to and from around syria but um it is really important to highlight that these places the, re- the Assad regime basically neglected large swathes of the country in in this way so is it fair to say that Sarut grew up in a in an environment that was both um, impoverished and also one steeped in conservative Sunni Islam? So I think um, on the first point about impoverishment from from you know what what we know about Sarut to where he grew up, yes, you can answer yes to that um, question. In fact, even when and we'll get onto this when we talk about his career. But even when he was playing as a goalkeeper in the youth football team for Al-Karama, which is a football team in Syria and Homs that's very well known, um, the name Al-Karama translates to dignity. That was the name of the football team. Even then, he was on the youth, um, on the youth team and he was, um, uh, he was a perspective for the actual team itself. But even as a member of the youth team, I think he earned roughly 30 US dollars per month. Um, and so, you know, despite him having such an important role, he, he didn't make much money. And also it's important to note that he was unable to complete his education due to the, um, economic situation. And he worked in construction, um, prior to, um, becoming a member of the football team. So, and then on the second point you mentioned about conservative Sunni Islam, I think it's, it's important to note that the, uh, majority of Syria um, for people listening who aren't aware of this, the majority of Syrians are um, Sunni Muslims. But um, that's not to say that, you know, every single area in Syria is the same. You know, it, it, it is a extremely multicultural and multi-ethnic country. And um, prior to 2011, you know, Syrians, um, Sunnis and, and, and Shias and, and, and Muslims and Christians lived alongside each other. And um, the, the the conservatism of Syrians, of Muslim Syrians, was generally not, you know, something that you would, that anyone could consider extreme in any area of the country. Yes, they were religious, but, you know, it was very, it was a very private form of um, religion, especially because, you know, the Assad regime um, 
since its inception when Hafez al-Assad carried out the corrective movement in 1970 and became sole dictator of all of Syria, he um, clamped down on any religious activity that was outside his control. So, you know, he has, Hafez al-Assad had Sunni Muslim clerics who he um, sort of um, raised as part of his security apparatus to be in favor of him. So that if any sort of religious opposition to him ever spawned, he would have clerics on his side who would, you know, take his side and, you know, be in support of him. So, yeah, and of course, you know about the um, Muslim Brotherhood uprising in Hama in the 80s. So, you know, religiosity in the public space was extremely clamped down upon, you know, confined to people's private lives. So, you know, I I would say that Abdelbast Saud, it's also important to note that um, Abdelbast Saud, prior to 2011, in his own words, did not pray. Um, he he was someone who didn't pray and didn't fast in Ramadan. This was we 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 wow, discovered wow. this when he um because w- after he um became and we'll we'll come on to this when he was a singer for the uh, revolution, and that was how people were first introduced to Abdullah Saud, like him chanting in the streets, you know, singing you know beautiful songs about the revolution, and calling for various other provinces in Syria to rise up as they were rising up in Homs, he, uh, the regime were quick to declare him a Salafist jihadist. And this was before he'd, um, you know, even taken up arms as he later did. And he had to go on video in 2011. And you can still find this video where he says, the regime has accused me of being a Salafist and they put a bounty on my head. And all I do is sing. And I've, uh, I only started praying last week and I always only started, you know, doing those basic, fundamental um, things that a Muslim does last week. So, you know, the regime were quick to brand him a Salafist way before he even, you know, anyone could argue. And as we will touch on, he sort of, you could see him gradually um, descend into Salafist rhetoric way before that. The regime had already arbitrarily decided, as they do about anyone who opposes them, that he was a terrorist and he was a Salafist. So it's important to note, you know, that in the context of Saud, yes, he would have probably grown up in a conservative Sunni family, but from what we know, at the very beginnings, he was not a religious figure in, in, in any way, shape, or form. That's interesting. So what? So I had never heard that. Um, I, I didn't know that about Saud. I didn't know that he wasn't particularly religious before 2011. What do you think it was that kind of that kind of made him go from being being not quite a very observant to being more so that way? It's a really good question. I think. And we'll, we'll, we'll come on to what happened later on and, you know, his, the fact that he veered into, um, uh, Salafist rhetoric. But, um, in that clip, when he says, I only started fasting and praying last week, we can, we can sort of touch on the fact that, you know, he became more observant of what he believes are his duties as a Muslim and not necessarily as, you know, someone who is, um, extreme in any way. I, I really can't speak to that because um, that would have been that would have been I think something personal to him. But of course, we can't sort of pretend that that has nothing to do with the uprising. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think I'm, I'm I'm sure it was you know I'm sure it had something to do with um, the, the the start of the revolution. But um, I I can't personally speak to it. But yeah, um, that that that's as good of an answer as I can give because I don't want to. Um, 
assume too much because that's as much as we know about um, that particular period of his life that, you know, he, he came out on that video and he said, you know, I only started praying last week, but he didn't really elaborate on that. He did go on to say, you know, this is a uh, revolution. This is a people's revolution. And he rejected in that particular video, he rejected sectarianism. He rejected um, the, the accusation that he was a, a sectarian figure. Yeah. Um, but I, ca I can't speak to his um, sudden, um, you know, um, uh, incremental religiosity at, at that particular point. I think there's much more to be said about his descent into a uh, more Salafist rhetoric around 2014. But, you know, we'll, we'll, uh, I'm sure we'll come on to that. So bringing this back to Sarut, I just want to give like a really quick overview of his early life, especially because there's an anecdote in it where I think it really I think it tells us a lot about his character and it really foreshadows um, the man that he'll go on to become. So, yeah, he was born in a poor Sunni family. He had a lot of siblings. He had like a, he had at least four brothers. Um, I'm sure he probably had some sisters, too. And sadly, all four of these brothers, plus his father and several of his uncles, would be dead within a few years with by 2014. That's right. And because of the poverty that he grew up in that we talked about earlier, one of the reasons he wasn't able to finish his education was that his father started pressuring him to work to support the family. And this work included doing things like transporting construction materials, a lot of really hard physical work from a young age. Mm -hmm. But from a, but also at a really young age, he quickly discovered he had a talent for a sport that the rest of the world calls football, what my people call soccer because we're savages. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, hey, the name that y'all call it makes sense because it involves people using their feet. You know, what we call football, it's a game that we play holding the ball in our hands and bashing into people with our shoulders. You might as well call it concussion ball. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just another example of American exceptionalism, isn't it? Just exactly. <laughs> but no, Sarut was a football player in the classic sense, and he became what, um, again, what the rest of the world calls a goalkeeper, what Americans call a goalie. And he was really, mm. really good at it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he was poised to become, um, because he was on the youth team of Al-Karama, and he was meant to be on the actual team. And um, like you said, he was incredibly talented. Yeah, I've seen videos where like he catches a ball and then he does like a flip in the air. Mm, I haven't seen those, but yeah. Yeah, that's his return <laughs> to Homs. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, he's I mean he he's just a mix of diff of unusual talents, including frankly preternatural physicality. And I mean we'll get into like his singing voice and his stage presence and all that, but like Right off the bat, what we're talking about, he's all, I mean, that's already an extraordinary detail. But the situation that he grew up with, though, where he's trying to go to school and also working, that really conflicted with, with his with his desire to play football, with his desire to practice and, and, and get good at it. So his dad actually tried to stop him. And, and there were times where Sarut would literally have to, like, sneak out of the house to show up for football practice. Mm. So from an early age, we see that he has a pattern of going his own way and standing up to, if not outright, defying authority. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's a very, it's a very good point. Um, and, you know, it's important to note that, you know, Sarut's story is the story of many Syrians 
many Syrians were left behind, you know, unable to complete their education and having to go into manual labor to support their families at an early age. You know, his story is um, him being a larger than life icon. That includes Syrians being able, feeling like they're able to relate to him and um, what he went through and his background. I, I just, I'm, I'm surprised he didn't make much money, though. I, I didn't know that professional athletes in Syria weren't paid very well. Because, like, in other, yeah, I mean, in other countries, yeah. he would have been making a good living doing that. Yeah, I mean, that's, that, that is another point um, t- to note. Um, Syrian, the Syrian regime did not really look after, and this goes, you know, across all various fields, um, not just football and other sports. The Syrian regime did not, really um look after um national talent or help um you know help nurture it in any way and the consequence of that was that there was a sort of leakage of that talent way before 2011 of people just migrating and going elsewhere and then syrians would hear stories of you know uh, other syrians who had left syria to um work being um being given top honors and being decorated. Um, but, you know, they'd be referred to as Syrian American doctors or they'd be referred to as, you know, Syrian American engineers. And they would yeah. have gone on, to, gone on to do these incredible things. And it's incredibly heartbreaking because you just think about how much they could have helped um, Syria itself, but they couldn't because their talents weren't appreciated. And so, that, that, you know, the story of, of Sarut not being paid, barely being paid anything as a member of the youth team falls into that very neatly yeah there's already a syrian diaspora all over the world even before 2011 absolutely absolutely is it true that sarut was voted second best goalkeeper in asia that i haven't heard before so i don't want to you know all right um, i'll edit this part out <laughs> uh, uh no no worries yeah I, that i'm not sure about i i, I haven't heard before so and that that's that's like one of the first things people will often see when they google him it's like it's pretty high up in his Wikipedia mm. page, so I don't know if it's true or yeah, not. I, I'd have to I'd have to double check that. But. I recall a clip where, like, I mean, obviously it was subtitled. I remember seeing him say that once. Mm. So w- whether or not you think he was a reliable narrator or not, I guess that's up to the individual to figure out. Mm. I don't know. I mean, I'll, I'll give Sarit this much. Like, I, I don't mean to. I know we're trying to be objective. We're not trying to romanticize this mm. guy. He wasn't a perfect person. Of course. No, far from it. There's a widespread perception that he was a lot more honest, at least, than a lot of other, um, frankly, leaders who have participated in both the protests and later on in the war. Absolutely. And hopefully we'll come on to that because that's an incredibly important point to highlight about you know, our perception of why Syrians like him so much and why they did um, before he... Um, before he died, but we'll come on to that, I'm sure. Yeah, he, he yeah. at least a lot of Syrians will tell you that he's one of those guys who, whether you like him or hate him, whether you agree or disagree with him, what he's telling you is like he's speaking from his heart in the moment. He wasn't some oh. calculating schemer. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, and um, that's something that can be seen in almost every stage of his life. He, 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 he was an honest man, you know. He, yeah, people, people felt like his. His intentions were always pure, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And even if even if he was going down a bad path, he wasn't going to, like, 
sugarcoat it. No, and it's important to, and this is something that the article from Al Jumhuriya points out, which I think it's an incredibly important article that everyone should read if they want to really know about him, learn more about him. It's a bit condescending to say that he was, you know, brainwashed into the path that he took, which he, you know, later left. It's um, it's condescending to say that. It's it's important to be uh, not just honest, I think, but to be able to give him some autonomy and to say, you know, he knew what he was doing. Maybe that there were some, ex- uh, definitely there were external pressures that led to that path, but it's important not to, you know, just suffice with saying oh, that he was brainwashed and, you know, to get rid of any objectivity in that way. You know, he did choose that path. He did know what he was doing. But yeah, it's, it's, it's important to note that, you know, there was some level of, um, auto- uh, it's important to note that there was some level of autonomy in um, the decisions that he took throughout his life, but not to be condescending about, about who he was and what he did. Definitely. So turning, turning on now to early 2011, um, there's a, the, there's a, there, he did, my podcasts always take forever to edit because there are just moments like this where I don't know what the fuck I, to say. I, I, <laughs> I don't know how you do it. Honestly, there must be incredible amount of, amounts of time. Uh, editing. Yeah. Lots of time, lots of, um, do overs, like, mm. like trying it four or five times and dr- drinking yeah. lots of caffeine in the process. <laughs> yeah. All right. Let me. This is like take three or four. No, don't worry about it. And try to get that podcaster voice going. So, turning now to um, the protests, I wanna I wanna just read a quote from a an interview that Abdul Basid Al Sarut did with a Syrian journalist named Abu Salah. This is where he describes his exper- his first uh, his experience going to a demonstration for the first time. Quote. My first protest was at the clock tower in Homs. I went out with the protesters. It was in honor of the martyred, and there were Assad regime snipers posted around the area. So I led the chant. Listen, no sniper. This is my neck and this is my head. Unquote. That is badass. There's no other word in the English language for it. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, he, one of the things that we, the people know about him was that at the start of the revolution, a lot of people were fear, fearful of, you know, being identified by um, the regime and, you know, being arrested for going out in these protests. So a lot of the times people's faces would be blurred. And this is, this is when I say a lot of the time, this is at the very beginning, sometimes some effort would be taken to, you know, blur the identities of the people who were chanting or singing in order to protect them. And I think that did happen to him in the very first few um, clips that were put out there. But then suddenly people came to recognize who that voice belonged to. And um, very soon after he was, you know, he'd come out and instead of showing his, the back of his head to the camera, he would, you know, be looking straight at the camera or he'd, you know, you know, you could see his face and he had no fear of that. And yeah. it is true to say that he was truly a fearless figure as were many people who, um, you know, were chanting against the regime from day one, you know, they were putting it all on the line, you know, knowing what this regime is capable of. I can't even begin to explain the level of bravery it takes to do what they did. I mean, we're talking about tens of thousands of people, sometimes even probably hundreds of thousands of people all over the country at some points. Definitely. 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 
I'm curious. So like that chant, listen, listen, no sniper. This is my neck. This is my head. How do you say that in Arabic? So uh, I this, is gonna be, this is going to be embarrassing for Arabic speakers who are listening in. So could you say that again? Uh, um, listen, listen, no sniper. Uh, I think so. I, I So it's important to note that um, Sarut comes from a part of the country um, with a different dialect. So Syria uh, is, is incredibly is incredibly diverse, and um, you'll you'll find that similar to the UK or other countries around the world, there are different dialects depending on, on where you are in the country. So Sarut's dialect, um, and, and and that difference in dialect will also include a difference in vocabulary. Sometimes certain phrases, colloquial phrases, and words that are used that might be um, unfamiliar to someone in another part of the country um but if i had to translate that um in i mean i promise you don't you know, have the dialect you, don't, of, you don't have to sing it like he did i just i just wonder, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah i just wonder like how it sounds so 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 what was it listen listen oh sniper this is my neck and sorry could you remind me again uh yeah this is my neck and this is my head i i, I was just asking because okay. like uh i figured yeah. it probably it probably yeah. sounds better in arabic than in english it sounds a little yeah weird in it's, english. it's so if i had to translate it in my dialect it would be like but um that's a lot more I, poetic I, <laughs> I don't know if those were the exact words he chose i don't know you know exactly how he said it if the phraseology was different but um that's how it would be translated for me so, so right off the bat, at the very beginning of the Syrian revolution, we have this guy, Abdul Basid al-Sarouf. He's incredibly physically gifted. He's, phys- he's very strong. He's a really talented athlete. And he's also, it turns out, he's really good at coming up with protest chants in the moment. And he also happens to have a really great singing voice, too. Most people don't have that many extraordinary talents. No, no, definitely not. He, he, was, he was a very unique person. And I mean, like his voice is a distinctive one. I I could see why people pretty quickly ide- figured out who he was. Yeah, it's it's really important in the context of this discussion to highlight that this is a man who became a target of the regime right off the bat. You know, from from the very first protest that he attended, the very first chance he sang, the regime saw him as a threat. Because of his ability to, you know, galvanize protesters and to, to you know, um, to create that energy that, you know, makes the hairs at the end of your skin stand up and gives you goosebumps. Um, it, it's a very unique talent that the regime was afraid of. The regime, before anyone took up arms, they, they were incredibly threatened by figures who could unite the country under a single banner for, you know, freedom and and, and and democracy and justice and you know Sarut was one of those people and of course he wasn't alone in that you know there's a lot of people who the regime saw as a threat in that way which is why um, as soon as you know from the very first few chants and the very first few protests a bounty was put um, forward for his um, arrest and um, he was labeled by the regime as a Salafist way before he even decided to take up arms as um, other Syrians did. I would say this this to the listeners. No exaggeration. After watching numerous videos of Abdul Basid al-Sarut giving speeches and singing in front of thousands of people, I, I'm saying with no exaggeration, he is one of the most naturally charismatic human beings I have ever seen. 
Definitely, definitely. I mean, so many of these different talents that he had, if he had been born in different circumstances, in a different country, he could have gone on to do all kinds of different things. He could have been, I, I could honestly see him either becoming a CEO or even maybe a pop singer. Like that is how talented he was. And that is the story of, of the Syrian tragedy in a way. Um, uh, it's heartbreaking to think about the amount of wasted talent that, you know, was never allowed to be nurtured um, or developed uh, within Syria. You know, it's, it is heartbreaking to think of the, the thousands of Saruts out there, um, not just the thousands of Saruts, but the thousands of Basaj Hadis, the thousands of Layyath Maltars, and, you know, everyone else who we lost um, in, in, in every possible field, not just, you know, in, in politics, but in politics, science, um, STEM, everything else. Medicine. For sure, yeah. One of the dichotomies about this guy is that even though, by all accounts, he was a very humble person in his personal life, I think it's also clear he he was at the very least very, very good at being the center of attention. And frankly, I think he enjoyed it, even if he didn't want to admit it, whether it's um, whether it's doing tricks while 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 playing soccer, while playing football or just having having the guts to stand up in front of tens of thousands of people and make his voice heard. Yeah, I mean it's so like you said it is it is a it is a um great contrast because throughout his life um so I mean to say throughout the time that you know people knew who he was and he was a sort of celebrity in almost every single interview that he did when he was asked the question of you know are you an icon of the revolution he rejected that for you know in all yeah. shape and form. He rejected the a label of, of, of an icon. He didn't want to be seen as an icon. Um, he wanted to, he, he, his basic, his basic thought was, you know, I'm not an icon. You know, the, the, the icons of this revolution are the people of this revolution. Right. The people of this revolution are its icons. Please don't see me as an icon. So he resisted, um, he resisted himself being turned into an icon, but against his best wishes, he, he is an icon, you know, whether he, likes it or not, you know, now that he's passed. Um, but I think it, it's, there's, there's no problem. There's no issue with, you know, celebrating him yeah. Um, yeah. For, uh, for who we knew him as uh, w without, you know, romanticizing him or um, making him out to be something other than he was. I think that's the most important thing because that's, that's the main problem I think with, um, you know, turning people into icons or, you know, um, romanticizing them in ways that uh, prevents us from looking at them objectively or appreciating them for who they really were. Yeah, he was definitely he was definitely a lot more down to earth than your average celebrity. I, I, my point was simply that he definitely enjoyed protesting with the people. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, those were in, in his own words, those were his favorite days. So in an interview he gave one of the last interviews he gave, he, he said that, um, well, he is incredibly nostalgic about the early days of the revolution. He called them Ayam and Naqat, the, the, the pure days of yeah. you know, the, the yeah. peaceful protests and, you know, the, the, the chants and the singing. So he no doubt would have, um, those would have been his, in his own words, his favorite days. And he would have enjoyed those um, about him enjoying being the center of attention. I guess it's, it's, it's difficult, you know, to read into, you know, what he, 
truly felt, but I, I, I guess that would have been, you know, human nature to feel like you were, yeah, to feel yeah. like you're at the center of attention. But I can't, I can't speak to, you know, how he felt. I mean, he pro- um, yeah, I doubt he, yeah, I, I, I probably chose my wor- words poorly when I said it. I, I guess just to clarify, no, no, I think when he was yeah. 19 years old, he probably felt differently about it than when he was 27 at the end of his life. Yeah. I don't think you, you chose your words poorly because we have to remember, you know, you have to keep reinforcing this. He was human, just like us. He was 19. Um, he was 19, yeah. So it's to put yourself in his shoes, I'm sure um, the, the, the amount of support that he that he, that he had at the time, it would have, you know, it, it, it would have been a lot of mixed feelings, but I'm sure a, a part of him would have enjoyed that for sure. Yeah, like in the moment, it must have been intoxicating. But later on, when people ask him about it, he's like, no, I'm not an icon. Mm. I'm just a regular person. Mm. Of course, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, which I mean, the fact that he even would say that is another thing that really stands out about him. Mm. Yeah, he was. Yeah, he was incredibly humble um, throughout th- throughout his life. Um, even in in exile, when he and we'll come on to his exile in Turkey, but even in his exile in Turkey, he was um, he was offered various positions in. Um, the leadership of the Syrian opposition yeah. that is based in Turkey. And he rejected it completely, even though it would have been um, an easy way for him, an easy an, an easy way out for him, away from Syria, away from what was happening. And it would have, you know, guaranteed a good life for him. He rejected that in all its forms. So that, that's another important point to keep in mind. Is it, is it fair to say that a lot of Syrians have grown disenchanted with Syrian opposition leaders just because of how so many of them are either corrupt or incompetent or both. It absolutely is accurate to say that. Yeah, definitely. 100%. And we can, we can come on to that at a later stage, but you're absolutely right to say that. Um, uh, at the moment, I would say someone who's, you know, feels very strongly about the revolution would, would tell you that the official opposition as they're called that are based in turkey they're incredibly um i'm looking for a word that's more stronger than useless but useless is the right word they're very useless self-interested and incredibly out of touch with what's happening on the ground so you know that is a very accurate way to put it yeah the best the best of them are out of touch the worst of them are capricious and corrupt definitely definitely yeah i mean there is no lost love for um Syrian opposition members at the moment, I'd say, I think people who actually actively support them, they do, they would definitely be in a minority. So on this topic, what would you say sets Sarut apart from others in the opposition? And I, I don't mean simply in terms of like, why is he better than everyone else? Like, what is it? Let, let's, let's shift focus now away from the largely discredited government in exile, if you will. And uh, shift gears over to like people who are, you know, generally people think of them as being really decent people, people like Mazen Darwish or Razan Zaituna, for example. What would you say? Mm. Well, what separates Sarut from those individuals? I think it's 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 sacrifice more than anything else. You know what they what they sacrificed and and um. Maybe in the instance of Sarut, it's different because he went through various different phases. But what sets him apart from those other individuals you mentioned is that he his his trajectory very closely mirrors the trajectory of um, the Syrian uprising. You know, it's I always say that 
it's very it's incredibly wrong to try to um you know cover up his flaws and cover up um what we consider in hindsight was you know wrong decisions that he took it's, it's incredibly um it's an incredible disservice to him to try to cover those up and to it's better to say that you know his his life mirrors the trajectory of the Syrian revolution in the sense that you know when it started it was a, it was a peaceful uprising that was met by um, a totalitarian government that wanted to crush all forms of dissent and he you know he he rode that wave and then there was the period of time where it was forced to take up arms because you know protesters were being killed and they were being shot at and he. He, he was taken in by that wave as well. There was then the uh, wave of Islamization that um, gradually seeped in as a result of a feeling of betrayal within the opposition itself and um, from the outside world and a growing feeling of desperation. He was taken in by that wave, no doubt. And then there was the... Um, Syrians um, distancing themselves from that Islamization, that wave of Islamization, when when they realized that you know it was not at all um, in the interests of the Syrian people or the revolution, and that it was actively fighting the revolution. Syrians distanced themselves from it and um, went back to the true essence of the revolution. And he again rode that wave in and out. Um, Fast forward to his last days of, you know, fighting under the umbrella of his own group, um, Jesh al-Azza, um, you know, having distanced himself from those um, extremists and uh, going back to being the Sarut that we knew at the start of um, 2011, 2012. So it's crazy how much, you know, he, 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 the, the essence of his life, the essence of his career path, not, not career path, that's the long term, the essence of his life path mirrors what we went through step by step and that's why we say he's um his very essence is you know the essence of the syrian revolution and in, in all its mistakes and all its flaws and imperfections and in all not in all things beautiful about it he he sort of encapsulates it in a way so before before we get into some of the uh flaws that you mentioned i want to read a quote from the al-jum haraya article about abdul basad al-sarut this is about this is describing how he uh, how he was killed ultimately in 2019, and it really show. I, th- I think it really speaks to it, it shows us a lot about his character. Quote: During the final battles he fought in the north and west of Hama province in 2019, Sarut was on the front lines with Jaisha Iza, appearing in a video in early June, speaking excitedly of, of progress made in the Talmala region. And now the article quotes the journalist Abu Salah, quote, After the liberation of the area between Talmala and Al-Jubayan, Sarut learned that a group on the rear lines had been injured by bombardment. And so he decided to head there in his car to aid them. As soon as he turned on his car, the area he was in was shelled, though without injury to anyone. When the car began moving, however, there was a second wave of shells, and Sarut was wounded in his stomach, leg, and arm, and taken to a medical site in Kanshekun. Those aiding him had wanted to move him to the Aldana Hospital in, in the northern Idlib province, but Sarut's heavy bleeding forced them to stop along the way to give him blood. Once in Aldana, his injuries were brought under control, 
and his condition stabilized. However, after he was transferred to a, a hospital on the other side of the Turkish border, his condition deteriorated, which Abu Salah attributes to his repeated movement and severe blood loss. On the morning of June 8th, Sarut passed away as a result of his injuries, bringing an end to a short but epic life full of dramatic transformations, battles, and blood. At his funeral, the body so often carried on the shoulders of crowds was raised one last time by mourners chanting for him rather than with him, burying him away from the homs he had spent his last years fighting to liberate anew and return to, unquote. That was from an article on aljumharaya.net titled The Days of Abdel Basit, and it was translated by Alex Rowell. So, like, what's, what's your take on all that, man? Yeah, I mean, it's incredibly, it's incredibly sad um, that we would lose someone, and it's someone who's, you know, larger than life like that. I remember the the day he passed, when he found out that he had passed away, he, the shock and the sadness, um, you know, it was something to behold. I think it, it, I remember um, being around my parents at the time, and I remember seeing my mother cry in a way that I'd only seen when her father had passed away. Um, yeah. And I, I don't remember her crying like that with the exception of, of, of her father passing away. So he was like, I keep saying a larger than life figure who, you know, Syrians held very dear to their hearts. The Abdul Sarut that Syrians knew was the Abdul Sarut of 2011, 2012. It was the Abdul Sarut who that we called him Haris Athora, the goalkeeper of the revolution but also Munshid the the singer of the revolution, it's, its voice. So it was an incredible sadness, but, um, you know, we, we don't lose hope, and, um, you know, his memory lives on, ultimately, and it inspires us in our struggle to continue. So the individual who goes by the pseudonym Velvet Thunder on Twitter had a ton of great stuff to share about Sarut and his circumstances, so much so that we couldn't fit it all into one episode. I took about half of the interview out and will release it as a bonus episode on Patreon. We dived deep into the controversies surrounding Abdel Basit al-Sarut and why his memory can still unite Syrians from multiple walks of life and worldviews. Please consider joining us on Patreon for as little as $3 a month to access this and more bonus content. I'm also editing another bonus episode at the moment where where I interviewed a guy who happens to be from Palms, which was Abdul Basit al-Sarut's hometown. This guy described what, what it was like to protest in Palms in 2011 
and really why Homs really stands out in the Syrian revolution. It, it's definitely up there with Dara in terms of how people stood up to the regime and how they suffered as a result. So this other bonus episode is currently titled Adrenaline, Bravery, and Blood, The Revolution in Homs. This bonus episode will be released on Patreon basically as soon as possible. Just I'm editing it as fast as I can, along with all the other stuff. Thank you for listening to What Happened to Syria, a podcast about the country, the people, and their impact on the wider world since 2011. This has been our 12th episode, The Revolutionaries Part 2. Follow us on Twitter, at SyriaPod, so you can stay up to date with future episodes. You can email us at whathappentosyriapodcast at gmail.com. We encourage anyone to reach out to us if you think we got a detail wrong or have information relevant to the topics we discuss. If you are Syrian, part of the Syrian diaspora, or have otherwise been personally affected by events in Syria since 2011, please reach out to us. We'd love to have you on the show. If you like what you heard and want to support future episodes, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash whathappentosyria to support us for as little as $1 a month. You can also access bonus episodes for just $3 a month and join our Discord server for $5. You can also get fan-requested content and a shout-out in each episode when you join as a VIP patron for $20 a month. Shout-out to our patrons on Patreon, Jaeger DePato, and Evan Kennedy. Let's make that list longer. Thank you to all of our listeners. I'm Sean Hastings, the creator and host of What Happened to Syria. We'll see you next week.